In Nehemiah chapter 1, we see Nehemiah troubled in heart. He, he hears some news of how things are going with people that he cares about, the, the land of his heritage, what he considers home, though he's never lived there. This is where we are from. This is where he also longs to return. He, he hopes for it to be reestablished, and yet he hears it is falling apart. Have you ever been in that place where you've been, you've been praying? There is a need that is pressing in on you. Something needs to be done. Something needs to happen. It can't continue. It can't keep going like it is. Oh, God, you have got to intervene here. You've been praying. Will a door open? Will the thing change? And what if it does? What if that door does open? What if God does begin to move and that thing that you've been praying about and it's urgent, it's pressing on your heart, but if that door opens, are you ready to go through it? Are you ready to take a next step that God moving in that direction is going to call from you? You've been praying and sometimes God will then open the door and say, okay, well then let's go. And if God says let's go, are you ready? And what about others? Maybe this is something that is far bigger than you and it involves you. Maybe it's our church. Are others going to be ready to go with you? Are others also going to engage? Will they catch it? Will they see it? Will God move their hearts too? Or are you going to start something that, as, as Dustin described, God's put something on your heart. God has shown you a need. Maybe you're the one to begin to move that need. Maybe he would have you to help meet that. But if you move forward, is anybody else going to go with you? Or are you going to be left on your own with something that you yourself cannot accomplish, could never finish and bring about on your own? Well, that's kind of where Nehemiah is in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah has been praying. He's been praying a while now. He has, been, he has been praying this covenantal prayer that the God who does keep his covenant, the God who is faithful, who can be counted on, God, he says, do what you said you would do, that we are the people for whom you have made this covenantal promise. You had said you would restore us, and yet your people are living in desolation, in destitution. Their city has been destroyed. They have no security. They are in despair. They are being despised by enemies around them who mean them harm. God, would you do something? And now we've come to the moment. What if God does? What if that prayer that, God, that Nehemiah has been asking for, what if that door opens? What happens next? I want us to see in Nehemiah chapter 2 this morning that indeed God's good hand is upon you. That statement is made twice and it's referred to a third time. That assurance that things will change, things will be different, things will happen, that which you have asked for can be because God's good hand is upon you. God's hand is upon you for his good. And so that means, because that is true, because that is real, that God's hand is upon you to build up, to build through you, to build others up. Then be afraid, but speak up. I know that sounds contrary. Be afraid then, but speak up. 
Be ready to pray. We'll talk about how to be ready to pray. And be ready in praying to take the next step into God's restoration. That God is doing something here. So let's begin with prayer. Father, would you open your word to us? That we, Lord, would learn something from a, a time long ago. Lord, another circumstance, but your faithfulness to your people. Which continues even today. So, Father, in the things that you set before us and the opportunities to build your church, to build your people, Father, would you speak to us and give us the same courage and confidence in you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. First of all, I said, be afraid and speak up. Let's remind ourselves from, from the first chapter, and I'm, I, I'm in the book of Nehemiah. If you're using that, that black hardbound church Bible in front of you, you'll find us on page 398. At the end of chapter 1 in verse 11, here's the end of, end of Nehemiah's prayer. It catches the moment. In this desperate need, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Oops, I skipped back a verse. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants, your people, who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant, that is to Nehemiah today, and grant him, Nehemiah says, grant me mercy in the sight of this man. What man? Now I was the cupbearer, the personal attendant and assistant of the king. And not just any king, the king, Artaxerxes, fourth in, in secession from, from Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia, the Persian Empire, much of the world of that day. Nehemiah's personal attendant, he says, God, give me favor. Give me mercy in the sight of this man. And he's continued this prayer for about four months. We know that by the timing in verse 2, where it says, In the month of Nisan then, about four months later, in the same 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Because that's what the personal attendant does. Now, I had not been sad in his presence before this day. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad? Seeing that you're not sick, you don't have the virus, we checked you for a fever before you came into the throne room. This is nothing but sadness of heart. You're down. And Nehemiah is down, and, and some people want to think that the next verse goes on, he says, then I was very afraid. Why was he afraid? Maybe he's afraid because he's been caught. He let his guard down, and he's been, he's been seen as being unhappy in the presence of the king. And when you're in the presence of the king of almost all the world, and you're in his throne room, you're at the king's right side, while well, this is the happiest place on earth. This is better than Disneyland. There is no reason to be unhappy in the presence of the king unless you're not happy with the king. So it's a dangerous thing, it was said, to be in the, unhappy in the presence of the king. Don't you like me to be king? What's wrong with me being king? You could be suspect as not being on board, you know, in the corporate world, not being a team player, going in a different direction, which in that day could mean rebellion, insurrection. I don't think that's why Nehemiah is afraid. 
Nehemiah, it says here in verse 4 and into verse 5, there's a couplet that I love. I was very much afraid, and I said to the king. Nehemiah is afraid, and he speaks up. I was very afraid, and I said. Why is Nehemiah afraid? It could be the other. It could be the whole unhappiness thing. But I think this is the day. I think this is the moment. I think this is the open door that that Nehemiah has been praying towards, that this is the moment in which he intends, if he has opportunity, to make his request. And he's only going to have opportunity to make a request because the job of the king of the cupbearer is not to bring requests to the king. He can only bring a request if he's asked, what's wrong? And so this is the day, and I think there's some timing involved with the Persian feast, which the king was more, more uh, prone to grant requests, even extravagant requests that were made to him on the time of this particular festival. And so Nehemiah has been praying in this direction and it has been pressed upon him that this is the day, this is the moment, this is the day where he's going to allow himself to be sad in the king's presence. He is going to, by his expression and then by his words, he's going to send up a bubble. You say, what do you mean, send up a bubble? Well, I'm glad you asked, because if you hadn't asked, I could not have told you. Brings me to my little friend here. This guy... May not look like it to you, but more people are killed by encounters to hippopotamus in Africa than any other animal. They are deadly dangerous. I know you might be thinking of a lion being ripped apart by a lion, right? You might think of, of what about the Cape buffalo and those sharp, curved horns? If you, if you, if you corner a, a Cape buffalo, there can be nothing more dangerous. Or maybe you think about, oh, I can't think of anything worse than being trampled by an elephant. Well, it's hard to argue with any of those. But the numbers tell us that more people are killed by encounters with hippopotamus than any other animals in Africa. It happens something like this. The hippopotamus, they will sometimes, in the heat of the day, they will be submerged totally underwater. And let's say you're fishing with your buddies. I know Steve Morosi loves to fish, and he's a master fisherman. You're out there fishing. You're in a boat. Maybe you're on the Zambezi River. Maybe you're on the Crocodile River. Yes, there is one in South Africa, but it's not the crocodiles you only need to be worried about. And you're there with your buddies, and you're kind of fishing, kind of just relaxing. And all of a sudden, you see come up right next to the boat this big bloop. When you say, what's that? It sounded like a bloop. And that, I love making that sound, bloop. Right next to the boat is this big bubble that came to the surface. Say it with me. Bloop. Very good. And, and you say, well, what's that? I don't know. Your buddy says it sounded like a bloop. There's this big bubble came up under the boat. Now, maybe you're, maybe you're right on top of, a, of an under-the-river volcano that's just about to go off which would mean you should probably get out of there, right? More likely, that bubble that comes to the surface, which you can see, tells you there's something else under the surface. It's a hippopotamus. And he's just let out the air in his lungs, which means the hippopotamus is going to be surfacing and refilling. And he's going to surface, and he's under your boat. And when that hippo comes up, he's going to be surprised, and he's going to 
bang his head on your boat and that's going to be hurt and you're going to be tipped over and he's going to be surprised and startled and a little upset because his head hurts and there you are in his river. It's a very dangerous place to be. The bubble told you something more was underneath that you needed to notice and react to. Okay? Got that? Good. I told you that story to tell you this one. We, we, when we were in Africa, uh, as a, um, some of the training we used to do for our missionaries, we would use that example of a bubble in the river, because that was real in Africa. We'd use that as an example in communications. Because like something like hippos, people send up bubbles. They will send up a little something, an indication. It may just be a nonverbal bubble. It may be an expression that tells you something isn't right. And they're waiting for you to, they're, they're waiting to see if you even notice. They're waiting to see if you will ask. And they might reveal a little more. Maybe you'll ask them. You'll say, hey, how are you today? And they might say, well, fine, I, I guess. What's that? That's a bubble. Because that's not what you're supposed to say. Somebody asks you, how are you? What are you supposed to say? I'm fine. I'm good. Things are great. Doing wonderful. Living the dream. Whatever. You're supposed to say something positive and upbeat. You're not supposed to, oh, man, what a day today has been. It's been really tough. You know, I've really gone through some hard stuff. No, you're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to say fine. And so if you let on, well, fine, I guess. That's a bubble. What are you going to do? You could ignore the bubble and just move on. Or you could react to the bubble. You could do something with that. You could go further. You could say, oh, sounds, like, sounds like there's something going on. You, you, you can unpack that more, probably better than I could. Follow up. You react to the bubble. And then something more will emerge. People will do that. They don't know if you care. And so they'll send up a bubble, and will you notice it? Will you react to it? That is what Nehemiah is doing here. First, it's a nonverbal bubble. First, it's a sad face that he's allowed himself to have. And that's, and that's a risk in doing so. Because like I said, the throne room is the happy, happy place. And Nehemiah is sad. And the king notices. And something about their relationship over the years up until now has caused him, caused the king to notice and to say, this is not a sick, this is not something's wrong with your tummy, which means I should not drink that wine. No, this is something different. This is a different kind of sad. This is a, a sadness of heart. This is a, 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 a heaviness of spirit. And so I was very much afraid because now the moment is upon me where I'm going to say something about what has been troubling me these last four months. And now is the time we're going to bring it up. And if the king moves with it, great. If the king ignores it, if the king declines, it's done. It's over. I can't bring it up again, and the, and the um, um, need of Jerusalem will remain unmet. They will continue in despair. And so I'm very much afraid, I said, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He's very much afraid because he realizes the moment. Do we realize the moments that we're in, the impact of our words, the opportunities that we say we, we have given to us, the open doors that come? 
And there's a time to speak into it. There's a time to speak into somebody's life. There's a seriousness of moments for our words and our actions in them. You see, to take God seriously, to trust that God will work, does not diminish our role in God's processes, how he would use us in that. All of us know what it is to be dependent on the answers of others, right? You know what it's like uh, to, you have a request, but it needs an answer that is beyond your ability to obtain. Permitting a building. A college entrance application. A job application. Will they hire me? Maybe it's an assignment at the job you already have, a particular work assignment that is something you had wanted to do, you've longed to do. They hope they give it to you instead of somebody else. This could be the next advancement in your career if you were given that assignment and do it well. Or maybe for the young man, it's, will she say yes? And you may be afraid, but you better speak up, right? I remember still, with fear and trembling, calling a young lady and asking if she would go out with me, of all people, Be afraid and yet speak up. A little fear is a good thing. A little fear can push us to pray. A little fear, uh, realizing the moment and the importance of it, can, can push us to, to be careful about what we say. But don't let fear silence you. You know, if, if Nehemiah, being very much afraid, had let fear silence him, you know what would happened? The book of Nehemiah would be a very short story, wouldn't it? It would end somewhere right about here. But it doesn't. It goes on. The story continues, and the story is marvelous because though Nehemiah was very much afraid, he said, he spoke up. He tests the water. He sends a bubble, and he lets the king to indicate interest. The king indicates interest, and so now Nehemiah is ready to respond. And in his response, he's ready to pray. Uh, I love that, very much afraid, and yet I said to the king. I also like in verse in verse. Um, four and then five. The king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king. I love that. I prayed to the God of heaven and then I said to the king of the world. You see the order that he does that in? There is that impulse, impulse to pray that he responds to. In the moment, this is big, he prays and then he says. That's important. How does that happen? I, uh, some of you know that I, I have kind of a, a funny little thing. Sometimes somebody will say, there's some event going on, there's something happening, or whatever, but first we're going to start with prayer because that's what we do. And so somebody will say, well, first let me pray real quick. And often I will say, no, 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 no. You don't have to pray real quick. Take all the time you need. Okay? We don't have to hurry our prayer. I know some of you think, come on, it's time to eat. Pray real quick. But... There is a time to pray real quick, and this is one of those. Nehemiah breathes a quick prayer before he replies to the king, and he mustn't keep the king waiting. So he prays real quick, and then he replies to the king. But how, how is it? That, don't you wish you did that sometime? Don't you, isn't there a time that you can think of right now, something you said real quick or something you did real quick, the answer you gave real quick, and you said, oh, I wish I'd paused and prayed first. 
It would have been different. I would have said different. I would have done different. I would have reacted different if I'd only just paused quietly, quickly in my heart and say, oh, God, help me. It may be nothing more than that. Nehemiah is ready to pray, I'm convinced, because he's been practiced in praying for four months. You want to be ready to pray in the moment. There's nothing like practice, developing the habit, cultivating the habit to get you there. The one thing, continuing in prayer, as Paul tells us to do, begins with starting with prayer. You don't develop a ha- if you don't develop a habit of prayer, you aren't going to have an impulse to prayer. So Nehemiah is ready to pray because he's been in prayer. And not only that, not only has he been praying, but in his praying, Nehemiah has been planning. He's been thinking. He's been guided by God in his thoughts and his preparation, perhaps to this day, and perhaps what he's going to need to say next. Because I, I, I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, And if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. That's interesting. Now he brings in Judah. He didn't mention Jerusalem at first. That could have been a political hot issue. He keeps it very personal. He tells his story. He tells Jerusalem's need in a personal statement that Artaxerxes would have identified with. He talks about the despair, the destruction, the destitution of the city of my father's graves. Artaxerxes, descendant from Darius and from Cyrus, in that that, um, empire, the graves of the fathers were very important. There was Cyrus and there was Darius and there was Xerxes and there would be Artaxerxes next. And to be buried with the tombs of the fathers was a big deal. You can still go and see those tombs today. And so, he, 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 doesn't, he, he could have said, well, the reason I'm down, O king, is you remember 16 years ago when rumors came back from Jerusalem that maybe they were getting ready to revolt, and you said, no, you stop building, you cannot rebuild your wall, all those constructions have cease unless you hear further word from me. Remember when you said that? Well, you left them there. You never followed up. You never looked into it further. And they continue now in the same destitution, the same defenselessness in the midst of their enemies that you, king, left them in. And then Nehemiah would have been planning his funeral. That request would have gone nowhere. To raise it to the political level which would have put himself at opposition to the king. No, instead he, he keeps it on a person. There's all kinds of things that people want to argue about today. Don't do it. Don't get sidetracked into that stuff. Tell your story about your faith in Jesus. You know, the... the um, The instruction in Peter is still timely today where Peter says, you be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you when people ask. When people say, what is it with you? Why are you at peace in the midst of all this? Why are you so calm? Why are you, where does your hope come? What do you have? Be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. And they will ask. Pray to be, be ready and pray for opportunities. And so that door does open in verse um, 
In verse 6, the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. It pleased the king to answer the request. And now Nehemiah goes further. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the, to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. Well, that doesn't seem like a big deal. The king is sending him to Judah. The king has given him permission to go back to the city of his fathers and sort things out there. doesn't seem a big deal that he would ask for letters that would authorize him to travel through these various, these various regions until he arrives there. Could you, could you pre-approve the visas? Not that big of a deal, but there's more. And while you're in the midst of writing all those letters that would be obvious, needed, and, and um, uh, be important to do, could you write another letter or two as well? Could you write a letter to Asaph, verse 8, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make the beams for the gates of the fortresses of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy? And the king granted me what I asked. He goes a little farther. He says, and by the way, I'm going to need some building materials. And I can't carry them with me. We won't have them there. We have plenty of stone. He doesn't need to ask for stone. Because they have plenty of stone from the destroyed city when Nebuchadnezzar broke the walls down. And there's a lot more walls that are broken that are going to be rebuilt at this time. So there's plenty of stone. But he burned the city with fire. All the timbers are ash. He's going to need new timbers. And that's what he asks for. And in the request for the timbers, he also spells out, we're building the walls, we're closing the gates, my house as well as the new governor of the city. All of that's wrapped into the request, very subtly, and the king grants it. Why does he do that? Why would he do that? Here's the confidence of Nehemiah. And the king granted me what I asked for, the end of verse 8, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Why do we pray? Why do we ask the God of heaven before we ask the king of the world? Because the good hand of my God is upon me, Nehemiah says. That's a key. That's a key phrase here. It's, it's said explicitly twice, and it's referred to a third time. If there's anything we need to get out of this chapter, is that the covenant God toward his covenant people, the good hand of your God is upon you to do that which he has said he will do, that which he has begun, that he has promised to complete his good work in you. The good hand of God is upon you. You can have courage in that. So Nehemiah was afraid and yet spoke up. He was ready to pray and then to, to uh, see God's hand at work in answering those prayer. And yet, even though the good hand of God is upon us, it doesn't mean that there won't be opposition. And we step into that next when we, when, we, when we move into the rest of the chapter. Take a next step. Okay, now Nehemiah starts out. He has permission. He has the resources. He has the authorization. God has opened the door, and now it's to Nehemiah to take the next step. To leave the palace. There's something about an image of Christ here. Where, where Nehemiah leaves the, the good and wonderful, safe and luxurious confines of the palace of Susa. And he embarks on this journey to the broken down world of Jerusalem. He leaves the glories of the palace and comes to the broken down, destroyed, needing to be restored place where his people are dwelling, Jerusalem. 
So verse 9, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and the horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly. What displeased them? Not that he has horses. That's not the issue. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of God. Somebody had come to seek the welfare, the well-being, the good of God's people that was going to interfere with their own enrichment, their own using and abusing them to serve their own aims. And Nehemiah's mission is going to get in the way of that. Nehemiah's restoration is going to put an end to that. And they don't like it. Now, who are these people? We're going to run into them again, so we need to know who they are. First of all, Sanballat. He, I don't know if he's a governor. He's an official of some sort. He's not a governor of the whole province, apparently. But he's somewhere in the food chain. And he certainly has had influence. In fact, his sons are also governors of the region at one time or another after him. So we find him in other literature outside the Bible as well. He has a Babylonian name, which means the moon god Sin gives life. I know that's confusing. We think of sin as that which we do, but the moon god in Babylon, the moon god's name was the god of sin. How obvious can you be? But their understanding was that sin gives life. That's what Sanballat's name means. Think of him in New Testament terms as Sanballat the Samaritan. He has had control and influence over Judah until Nehemiah has arrives. And now there's a new sheriff in town. And he doesn't like it. Along with him, there's Tobiah. Now, Tobiah is a Jewish man. So, so if you think of Sanballat probably as a Samaritan, he gives his, he, um, he, he gives his son Hebrew-type names, but he's not an Israelite. Tobiah seems to be a Jewish man. We meet him in chapter 13. We meet him in the end of chapter 7, where he's described as a man who came with the returnees from the exile with Ezra, but his name, he claimed to be one of the priests. Maybe it's, a, it's an episode, early episode of identity theft because his name is not found in his family name. The... the um, the family background that he provided is not found in the official roles of the priesthood. And so he's excluded. But he's, he's made connections. He has relationships. And he continues to cultivate those connections with the elite and with the nobles, with the princes in Jerusalem, even as he finds gainful employment as a governor, a ruler of the Ammonites, just on the other side of the Jordan River. So he's Tobiah the Ammonite. You need to know something about the Ammonites, and that is they have opposed Israel from the beginning. They have opposed and fought against Israel during the Exodus and all through the kingdom years, except two times. Two times there's a partnership between Israel and the Ammonites, and both times it's a disaster. The first time was when Solomon aligns himself with the Ammonites and takes a wife, an Ammonite princess, as one of his brides. And she brings the idolatrous worship of Moloch, the Ammonite god, into Israel so that an altar is eventually built in the Hinnon Valley where in this fiery idol of Moloch, people, even some of the kings of Israel, would offer their own children into the fires of this idol. They would sacrifice their own babies for some blessing they believed this god would give them in advancing their, their circumstances in life. A horrendous 
terrible time in Israel. It came from Ammon. The only other time that they partnered together, it seems, is when one of the last kings of Israel, or, or rather of Jerusalem, aligns with the Ammonites and let's rebel against Babylon. And that's what brought the destruction of Jerusalem. So Tobiah the Ammonite, this is not a good, this is not a good partnership potential here. These are those that are in opposition. So moving through the opposition, realizing, aware of the opposition, Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem in verses 11 to 16, and he gets clarity about what's before them. Okay, let's not be overwhelmed here. Let's not, let's not underestimate. Let's look at what the need actually, truly, legitimately is. So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days, verse 11. Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, I told no one what my God had put into my heart, to do for Jerusalem. We're just going to go out for a ride tonight and just look at things. There was no animal with me except the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate, which is on the kind of halfway down the west side of the city, to the dragon spring and down to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem down to the very, very most southern tip. They were broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate. He's coming up the eastern side now into the king's pool. And there was no room at that point for the animal that was under me to pass. And back in the 60s, Kathleen Kenyon was digging in the oldest part of Jerusalem, around this old part of the city that King David had conquered and where the walls are that Nehemiah was rebuilding. And down, down that eastern side, a little, a little south of the halfway point down that eastern side, she uncovered this huge field of rubble, just as is described by Nehemiah here. Plenty of stones to rebuild with and a very steep section of the of the slope that he has to get off and basically scramble over the rocks in order to continue on and continue examining the wall. I went up by the valley, inspected the walls, and then turned back and entered by the valley gate. So he does a loop back, and so he returns the same way. The officials didn't know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who would do the work. I hadn't told them yet what was in my heart what I was up to. The first thing Nehemiah is doing is he's getting a first-hand look himself. He's heard the reports of others, but he needs to know before he rallies others around, he needs to know what's it going to take. What is the task at hand? The last thing he wants when he sets the vision before the people as a whole for all kinds of reasons to rise up out of the group, these are all the reasons why we couldn't do it. We live here. You haven't seen it. You don't know. You've got this ideal from somewhere far away, and you haven't been on the ground here. He has to get out and see what the real needs are. He gets close. He gets personal. He identifies it for himself. There's a clarity here about what is it that we're trying to do. I appreciate Dustin, Nate before him, a couple of our deacons that have been reminding us clarity in the church about what is it that we're going to focus on. What are we going to devote ourselves to and our energies as a church together? We're going to devote ourselves to gathering together in worship for encouragement and exhortation. We're going to take that worship out with us when we go from here. We are going to gather together in smaller groups to encourage one another. There's where care and belonging happen. We're going to equip one another for ministry. We're going to build up the body of Christ 
through in, intentional training opportunities so that we are equipped for the ministry together that God has given us. We're going to focus on these three things, and they're going to keep talking about those three things. There's a clarity in what is it that God has set before us to do and how will we go about doing it. But it's not on Nehemiah alone. There is a time to bring others into the pictures. In verse 17, he helps the others join in. They create a unity in this together. There is opposition, but in the midst of that opposition, there's clarity of what needs to be done, and there's unity, and then there's courage in the face of the opposition. Let's read from verse 17. I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. You see the trouble we are in. I love the way he, as he did in his prayer, as Daniel did in his prayer, he identifies himself with the people in the need for restoration. He doesn't come in on his high horse above them, already arrived, and they need to come up to where he is. He identifies himself. There's something of the incarnation in there. I described it last week in terms of Jesus being baptized in John's baptism of repentance to join himself with the people in their need for restoration. Nehemiah does that here. We see something of Jesus moves from the palace to the broken down city and identifies with them that he might lift them into God's purpose of restoration. We. We talk about the need of a Savior We talk about we need a Savior with other people. It's not that you need a Savior. We are broken people in a broken world in desperate need of God's Savior. All of us. Nehemiah identifies with the people. See the need, the desperate situation that we are in. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision, that God's covenant people in God's place in which he has chosen to set his name, this place which he intended to be a city on a hill, this city and this place in which the worship of God was, was shown earlier by Solomon to the queen of Sheba who said the half has not been told and how the glories of God were known throughout the world because of what God was doing there and they will be still. When they built that little temple, that restored temple, God said to them through Haggai the prophet that that the glory that comes to this temple will be even greater than that which came to the former temple. And the very presence of God and the Shekinah glory came to that former temple, but the very presence of God and the person of Jesus Christ came to that restored temple. Even with Herod's remodeling, still he came. And that's what they're a part of here. They don't see all of that. But how Nehemiah encouraged them to join in to that which is far bigger than any of them can fully realize, to come let us build, that we may no longer be a place of shame, but that this place may be a place of honor. That this place will be a place again of God's worship and God's glory. Let's rebuild this place to be a place where God is at work and the people around us see it. A place for that to be seen matters. It matters then, it matters today. And then he adds, how could this be? Can we do it? How could it be possible? Verse 18, I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken. We can't do it. No, 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 it's not about us. 
The good hand of my God is upon us. I can't, but God will. In fact, he's already started. This is how he's already opened the door. This is how he's already provided the resources. These are the letters that he's already written. He's already rescinded and overruled that previous decree that shut it all down. We are on the way. God is at work. Now's the time to join in. What are you going to do when God has set before you an open door? And this is what they do. Let us, they said, let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hand for the good work. And there will be opposition. Whenever you take a step forward, expect there will be trouble. There will be opposition. When God is on the move, it will be resisted. I remember a Bible teacher years ago, he used to say, if you throw a a rock down a dark alley and you hear a yell, it means you hit something. So if you're experiencing trouble and opposition in the midst of taking next step in following in God's restoration, it just means you hit something. Keep going. And so there is the opposition. Verse 19, when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite, the Geshem, the Arab, and other ones joined in from the south, they heard it, they jeered at us, they despised us, they tried the shame, they tried the ridicule, first of all. What do you think you're doing? Who are you to do such a work? You guys can't finish this. You guys can't even start this. You don't know what you're doing. You don't even have stonemasons. You're priests and perfumers. And, and what do you think you're doing? They tried shame And mocking, first of all, and then they suggested, then there's the veiled threat. We stopped this before. We can stop it again. What do you think you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Are you rebelling against the king again? We told him last time, and he shut you guys down like that, and we're not afraid to do it again. But what they don't realize is they're on the wrong side of history. They're on the wrong side that God is moving. Nehemiah has a letter that they haven't seen. God is the one who is sovereign here, and the good hand of God is upon them. If you're going to join in God's wonderful work of restoration, if you're going to take a next step in what God is doing, in building up his church, in showing the glory of his worship to the people around you, you you can expect opposition. You can expect to be mocked. You can expect to be looked down on. You can expect people to even try to forbid it. And yet, according to God's covenant with us, Jesus himself says, all authority has been given to me, so go. The good hand of your God is upon you. Be afraid, but speak up. Be ready to pray and be willing to take a next step into God's restoration because the good hand of God is upon you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do. Lord, we go forward trusting you. We go forward confident that as you have commissioned your church to bring your gospel, as you have commissioned us to build up one another in the body of Christ, oh, Father, would you build? Would you build your church? And in this place, On this corner, as you build up your church, as we build a presence here that can be used in future generations, Father, would you use it? 
You are the God of heaven. You are the one who is sovereign in control. It is to you to whom we lift up our eyes, saying, where does our help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth and all that is within it. Lord, give us courage in the midst of our fear. Help us to speak. Lord, help us to take that next step where you would have us build with you. In Jesus' name, amen.